Well, Jonah chapter 3. We are uh, closing in on the end of our journey through this uh, great book. I hope it's been an encouragement and our heart really has been to help us as a church grow in what it is to be the people that God has called us to be. Missionaries, people who go out to the world with the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we started back in chapter 1 a few weeks ago looking at what it means for us to be obedient missionaries. Those who hear the call of God and go. Not just those who have been saved, but those who go with the gospel. And then last week we looked at what it means for us to be theological missionaries. And we weren't intimidated by that phrase at all. We simply said that means missionaries, God's people who go with a right sense of what the gospel is. Not some watered down thin gospel, but the gospel which is a message of salvation to sinners, a message of hope to sinners that that comes only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but is offered freely by grace to all who have put their faith in him. We want to be obedient missionaries, theological missionaries, and this week, as we get into chapter three, we want to be faith-filled missionaries. Faith-filled missionaries, missionaries who genuinely, genuinely, as we look out and see the lost around us, believe that God can do what he said he will do, save the lost. So let's read together. John chapter 3, uh, John, Jonah chapter 3. Um, and I'm going to read through to the first few verses of chapter 4 as well. I want us to see Jonah's uh, response to what happens in chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, go on a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he praised the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Let me just pray again. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that as we gather around it, we don't just gather around a book, but we gather around words that are living and active. 
sharper than any two-edged sword. These are your words, Lord Jesus, your words to your people. And so we ask that you would speak and we ask by the power of your spirit that we would have ears ready to hear and hearts ready to be changed. Jesus, we want to be more like you. We want to be the church that you've called us to be, so help us. Help us to know what that means. Help us to step out in faith and move towards those who need to hear this great news, this urgent news of salvation in you. So we ask these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, 14 years ago, when I got married, or before I got married, I went on a stag do. If you don't know what that is, it's a bit of a get-together of all the, um, the guys who are part of the wedding party and you know, you can do all sorts of things. We went co-steering. And if you don't know what co-steering is, basically you, you um, scramble along some cliffs and then you jump off into the cliffs, into the water, and you swim along to the next cliff and you climb up that and then you jump off and you just keep on going. Anyway, we were going to do this in North Wales. My brother had organised it and we were all excited about going down. And we landed, we met with the instructor, sat in the back of his van and he went through all the health and safety stuff and we signed away our lives. But then he sat down and actually talked us through the science of what was going to happen, like to really give us confidence that it was going to be okay. And, you know, he said, you've got to time it when the swell of the water comes up. And I say jump. That's when you jump in because that'll be the, the deepest amount of water. And as long as you follow what I'm going to say, you'll be fine. Like, I promise you. That's literally what I said. I promise you'll be fine. It's not unsafe at all and so we're excited we jump in the water and the way it works or the way it worked for us was the cliffs that you jump off gradually get higher and higher and higher so we started on um, a six foot cliff like this high you jump off we've done it everyone's really excited like and then we move on to the next one which was around 15 feet i don't know maybe the size of this room getting a little bit nervous but you keep going and you build your confidence up as you go the next one was 30 feet high that's quite high, right? So that's, I don't know, it's, it's high. And it feels even higher when there's, there's, you know, waves kind of crashing down below. But he's down there, the guy's down there, he's shouting, you know, exactly when to jump down. It's going to be fine, you'll be fine. And so one by one, we drop in and we jump off. And then he takes us to the last cliff, 70 feet high, which is um, take a double-decker bus and put it on a tent, seven stories high. Anyway, he walks us up to the top of the cliff and we're all there, and he talks us through it. You'll be fine. Just listen to what I say. Talks us through the swell, the timing of the swell coming in, coming out. And he jumps off ahead of us. He goes in, Geronimo, jumps down to the bottom, and he's fine. And he shouts, okay, you guys, next one down. And we all at once <laughs> step back. Not one of us had the confidence to jump off. And he, you know, he was beckoning us down. In fact, one of them eventually did. One of my ushers, he just said, I'm going for it. And he took a few steps back, ran, shut his eyes and went down. And sure enough, he was fine. But the rest of us didn't have the confidence, even though he said it was going to be fine. And so we backed off. Here's a question for you this afternoon. The gospel is powerful to transform even the most sinful of sins. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you actually believe it? See, the first thing that faith-filled missionaries hold on to is a conviction that God can do what he said he will do. That he is powerful to transform even the most sinful of sinners. You see, when we talked back in chapter one about this call to be obedient missionaries, remember we talked about these, these barriers that we have of fear, apathy, 
preference and comfort, the things that prevent us from taking the gospel to the lost around us. And then last week we talked about, okay, what is that message? It is, it is the good news of salvation, this promise of new life in the presence of a holy God who loves us deeply. Remember that? Secured for us in Christ. When we hear that, I think all of us as believers here would say, yes, I believe that. And I know that I'm here to share that. I know that's the holy calling that has been put on my life to go and to share that with those around us. I know that salvation belongs to the Lord. But when it actually comes to the, the, the point where we have to step out in faith and actually engage in that, we so often back away. And we step away from the cliff. And maybe not even physically. Maybe we actually get as far as opening our mouths and and sharing the good news of the gospel with those around us. Maybe we even get that far, but I wonder how many of us don't believe that God is actually going to save that person. And we back away. See, as we get into Jonah chapter 3, it seems that maybe Jonah is getting there. Like He's been an interesting character, hasn't he, the last few weeks? Made a few wrong turns. After running away as far as he can in the opposite direction, finally, in chapter 3, he goes to the city that God has called him to, Nineveh. And he walks right through the city. In chapter 4, he calls out this proclamation, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And he's walking through, you can kind of picture him, the way that the narrative flows, walking through this, this, this big city, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then something amazing happens. The people of Nineveh hear the message and in verse 5, they believe God. And then we see that their faith is authenticated. They show genuine remorse for sin. They put on sackcloth and ashes, which was an ancient sign of, of just feeling the weight of grief. They fast. Like even the animals are called to fast. Like it's just a, such a total picture of transformation from the greatest to the least. The impossible happens in this city. God does what he says he can do. He saves, but in an impossible way. And yet in Jonah, in chapter four, Jonah looks at what has happened and he says, God, what are you doing? Like he can't believe it. And next week, we're going to drill down really into what's going on in the heart of Jonah that we see in chapter four. But I want us just to see this afternoon how his response exposes his lack of belief that God can do what he sets out to do. That God can save sinners and send saved sinners to save more sinners. His lack of belief that God can actually do that. His lack of belief that God can transform even the most sinful of sinners. And I want us to see the lack of faith that Jonah has because I think most of us probably find ourselves in the same place. That we might be bold enough and confident enough to take the gospel out and to share it, to share it with those around us. But do we really have the faith that God is going to change them? And that God can change them. You know, a few of us yesterday um, had a walk through town just to spy out some of the Eurovision stuff that was going on. Anyone watch Eurovision last night? Steve, I'm surprised. But I'm, there we go. There we go. That makes more sense. Um, and let me just say this. I'm not like a... I'm not going to shove down Eurovision. Like, do you know what Eurovision is? It, with a lot of things like, like this, you can actually see a picture of heaven in some of these things. That's not poo-poo stuff that we don't like. Like, actually, when it's sung well, 
singing can actually be a real picture of what heaven's going to be like. And actually when people gather around something and unite around a common cause like that, that is, there's a heavenly picture in there somewhere. Um, but in the midst of all the happiness and the colour and the sparkles and the glitter that we saw yesterday and all the excitement, if you spent any time in town this week and you had your eyes open, um, you would have seen and experienced a real undercurrent of brokenness. We, were, we went a few days earlier, actually, as well, and we were walking past the stage in um, Shabazz Park, and it was an open stage. Anyone could go, and there was kids there kind of gathering around, and there was music blaring out the speakers, a DJ playing, and there were young girls dancing on the stage, maybe five or six of them, not much older than some of our daughters, dressed in next to nothing. And people were celebrating it, and people were enjoying it, and... and and shouting after it and thinking that this is a, a wonderful thing and, and it was provocative as well, their type of dancing. And then you see how a lot of folks are dressed in, in a way that just totally distorts God's given design for sexuality and gender. And a real celebration of lifestyles that don't reflect the beauty of the image that God has created. And it's interesting, when I saw those things and experienced those things, here's where my head went. This is broken and it's distasteful and it's so far below the beautiful standard of life that God has called us into. And my, my instinct was to have my heart broken for these people because I could have a real sense that the judgment of God was coming towards them. Because I could see their sin in front of me and I could see so clearly how the wrath of God would sit over them. And my instinct is to, is to think that God's judgment is coming and for my heart to be broken in, in that way for that reason. And, and that's right in a sense. Like we should look out of the world and we should see sin and we should see the broken image and we should see the brokenness of the world and our hearts should break because we see the judgment of God standing and covering over those people. Like that was true for the Ninevites. They were celebrating a type of life that was leading them towards the judgment of God. Like remember what, what type of people they were. They were wicked people. And the cultural practices of the Ninevites knock spots off the cultural practices of our city. They were in a different ball game when it came to licentiousness. The Ninevites were some of the most evil people that walked the face of this earth. And Jonah's instinct, just like my instinct, is that when he sees their lifestyle, he sees that judgment is coming. And we're right to think that. But we can also think that transformation could be coming. My instinct is to think God, God, God's judgment is sitting over these people and, and my heart is breaking for them. Jonah's instinct is the same. He sees Nineveh and he thinks, yeah, the judgment of God is over them. God is going to pour out his judgment. But actually the gospel allows us almost to step over here and say, yes, but transformation could also be coming. See, there's something interesting going on in Jonah's message. He walks through the city and proclaims, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In his mind, he is thinking, you guys are done. It's over. 40 days and God is going to pour out his judgment. Well, here's what's interesting. That word overthrown that we read down there, it's this Hebrew word, hafak. It's another Scouse, Scouse one that works, isn't it? Hafak. And it's a word that has double meaning. 
a little bit like um, hair, right? I say hair, I could be talking about my hair. Or I could be talking about a fluffy rabbit type creature. Or if I'm posh, I could be talking about something that is hair. Does that make sense? Double meaning, actually, triple meaning there. This word hafak also has a double meaning. So in one sense, it could mean overthrown, destroyed, overturned. Or it could mean changed, turned around, transformed. Now that's interesting, right? 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Or 40 days and Nineveh will be transformed. Even the duration of time is interesting, right? 40 days. Like every time we see a number in the Bible, like usually there's some significance. And 40 in the Bible usually gives us a picture of a period of time of testing that is followed by renewal. A season of testing that, that, that is quickly <coughs> followed by renewal. So think of where we see in the Bible. Noah. Uh, Noah's on the ark and, and it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. And this is a season of waiting. And then what should have followed after that is, a, is a, an experience of renewal. Like it was meant to be a, almost a new creation at that point. Think about um, Moses. Moses, after he kills the Egyptian, he flees into the wilderness and he is there for 40 years. And this is a time of equipping for him. It's a time of of waiting. And then God calls him to go out and to lead God's people out of Israel. And then when Israel are in the wilderness, they are in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years. A time of waiting, a time of testing. And what follows that time in the wilderness is then being brought into the promised land, a time of renewal. Think about Jesus as he's tempted in the desert. How long is he in the desert for? 40 days. And this is a season of testing and what follows is Jesus' ministry goes out and it's a, it's a season of renewal. The disciples waited for 40 days for Pentecost. And what happens is a season of renewal. And there's lots more examples that we could go to in the, in the Bible each time. It is a period of testing and on the other side is the potential for renewal. I think the message that God gives to Jonah is, is, is this. Even if Jonah can't hear it like this. Judgment is coming. And the Ninevites deserve it. But don't doubt that I could also do a spectacular work of transformation. Mm-hmm. And as we look out across our mission field, folks, do we have the faith to believe that that is true for us today? That, that could be true for our city, that judgment is coming but so is the potential for dramatic transformation. And even if we just scale that back and we think about the, just that one person that we're praying for, the one person that we're engaging with in the gospel, and we just see them continually reject God and turn their back against God, are we prone just to sit in our default position where, where we think the judgment of God is coming, or do we have faith to believe that God could transform this person? And I wonder if part of our struggle is that often we think that we're too weak and that our efforts are too small. Well, here's the second thing that faith-filled missionaries need to know. The word of the Lord is the power for salvation, not us. 
The word of the Lord is the power for salvation. And yesterday when we were in the table, when we were at the table in the park, not the table, when we were at table in the park, uh, I was chatting to a guy who, and this was just one of those gifts, right? So, so we'd go out and we're trying to engage people and entice them in with cakes and bring them in. But this guy was just, he actually went across earlier in the afternoon and I, I invited him over. He said, oh, I'm just on my way somewhere. And then he came back and he had a little girl with him. And he was just hovering around. And then he came to me, like they're the best ones who actually come and have a conversation. And I said, oh, you know, what's, what's this about? And I said, oh, you know, from a local church and giving out free cakes and just here to, to share about who we are. And I said, oh, like, tell me more, like, what do you believe? And that's like, here we go, there's the golden buzzer. That's like the gift. Tell me what you believe. So I just shared just simple gospel with him. Talked a little bit about Jesus, talked a little about a little bit about what we believe. And his little girl's pulling on him. Daddy, can we go? Can we go? And he wanted to stay. And he wanted to talk. And I just shared a little bit more and stumbled through a few words and, you know, shared a little bit. And then eventually he went off. And as he left, I was thinking, oh, there's so much that I wish I should have said, I could have said. And so much that I think I missed out. And, and did, I, did I get that bit in the gospel? And I, did I give a, a clear picture of, of who, who Jesus is? Did I give him the right directions to church? And, you know, we can step back from Jonah 3, actually, and be so encouraged because here's what we see. A reluctant missionary who is sent by God to declare a simple message to the worst people. The worst. And in verse 4, just in 24 hours, mass revival breaks out right across the city. And everyone is affected. There's a mass outpouring of faith and repentance. And imagine Jonah's sitting there and he's like, what has just happened? Mm-hmm. All I said was 40 days and Nineveh's going to be overthrown. And everyone right up to the king is in sackcloth and ashes, fasting and cry- crying out to the Lord. Mm-hmm. See, the power for salvation wasn't in the man, it was in the message. If you look carefully in verse 4, Jonah proclaims his message. And in verse 5, the Ninevites, they don't believe Jonah. It says they believe God. In verse 8, it doesn't say they call out to Jonah. It says they call out to God. In verse 9, when they turn in repentance, it doesn't say they turn in repentance to Jonah. What does it say? They turn to God. And in verse 10, it's God who saves them. It's God who acts mercifully towards them. Jonah is important, but he isn't the one who saves And if you go all the way back to verse 1 there, it is the word of the Lord that brings about the dramatic change. And it's an important lesson for us here, folks. When we are looking out to the people in our community, the people that we want to reach with the gospel, when we are walking down our road past our neighbours' homes, or we're standing in the park on Saturday morning, on Sunday morning, sharing cakes and sharing the gospel, or having a coffee with a friend, our confidence to transform these people and to bring them into faith in Jesus It's not our strength. It's not our eloquence. Our confidence is in the word of God. The Apostle Paul adds flesh on the bones for us when he says in Romans 1 verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul is reminding us that the content of what we share is important. Like it's all about Jesus and we want to get to Jesus We want to get to the good news because it is the good news that is the power for salvation. Not our friendly chit-chat. 
It is the good news of salvation for sinners from sin, death and eternal judgment that they need to hear. That is offered to them freely and can be received by them by faith in Christ alone. Through the finished work of Jesus' life, death, resurrection and ascension. It's the truth in the message that is the power to save. That means at least two things, folks. It means one that we can rest because it's all on God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And we see that last week in chapter two. And it is accomplished by his word. So if you feel inadequate, if you feel weak, that's okay. Because it's the power of God through the proclamation of his gospel that saves. Not your strength. So rest in that. Secondly, if it's the proclamation of the gospel that saves, then we need to proclaim the gospel. We need to speak the word of God into the lives of those around us. And folks, we cannot afford not to. It's too urgent a message not to. Something Mark encourages us a lot in our GC to do is this. He says, folks, let's move our conversation onto spiritual things as quickly as possible. That's a good word, right? And we don't need a three-point sermon up our sleeves. Like, look at what Jonah says. 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Eight words. <laughs> now, I'm not suggesting we go with that message. <laughs> but eight words through Jonah. And look at what God does. Now, we do need to know the gospel, folks. And if you signed up to our weekly email last week as it went out, there was a, a link that you could click on that took you to a list of really helpful scriptures that you could memorize that would really help you. If you struggle with this, just have a look at that. Click on that link and just try memorizing some of those, those passages from the scriptures. And that will really help you as you engage with those around you. But let's remember this, our confidence for salvation, for those that we are seeking to reach. It is not in our eloquence. It is not in our delivery. It is in the word of God. And because that's true, here's the third thing that faith-filled missionaries can hold on to. Because that's true, we can dare to have a heavenly expectation for renewal in our city. We can dare to pray that God would bring revival here. Like we can be crazy enough to look out and think that God could transform this place. To see the world around us, to see the lives that people are living, and to see that, that they deserve his judgment just like we do. But the God in his grace is powerful to save every person in this place. Would we dare to believe that? I think we can when we look at chapter three and see what happens in Nineveh. Every person. Like the animals thing just, it's, so, it's almost comical. But I think what the Lord is doing is showing, listen, this is a total transformation. In every corner of the city, it is soaked in this transformational work by God. We see it in Nineveh, but we don't only just see it there. As you look back in the history of the church, you know what you see? You see that the normal cadence of salvation, if we could even call it, call it normal, the normal cadence of salvation is that God will save one person here and one person there, or maybe a family over there. But every now and again, you get something like Nineveh. This mass movement of revival, this mass outpouring of the spirit that brings about a renewal in spectacular ways. 
Like we see it in the first century in the New Testament church, right? Peter stands up, he gives his first sermon, every speaker's dream, 3,000 people are saved. More recently, the Great Awakenings in the uh, United States of America, the 1700s and 1800s, almost 100 years of revival there. Into the 20th century, we had the evangelical revivals here in England, more locally the Welsh revivals. In the early 20th century, where 100,000 people were converted in one year. And just this year, in Kentucky in America, a place called Asbury, 50,000 people converted and had all the marks of a genuine movement of renewal. And folks, it's not that we need revival. It's not that we need God to bring out this, this dramatic work of renewal in our city. He is sovereign and he will save who he saves, how he saves. We don't need this, this mass outpouring of renewal But man alive, we should want it, right? We should be desperate for it. And we we can believe that God can do it because he's done it before. And that kind of outpouring, it is so dramatic, it can only be God. It can't be forced by man, it can't be manipulated. But there does seem to be a common posture in the culture and in the church that precedes moments of mass renewal. Like we can't program it. There's no equation. But, but as you look back across history, you can see these, these similar components that, that come before a moment of revival. First, there is a fresh sense of the holiness of God. You see that in verse 9 in Nineveh. Like they get a sense that God is angry with them. They get a sense that, that their sin has, has, has led to the judgments of God sitting over them. They know that God is a God of judgment. They know they have a sense of the holiness of God. And that seems to be a factor in all revivals through history. There is just this eye-opening moment of the holiness of God. Second, there is a coming together in desperate prayer. I think we see that in verse 8. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. People fallen on their knees, crying out to God. That seems to precede every moment of renewal and revival. And here it is with the Ninevites, but, but as we look back in history, it's the church that gathers together. And they unite in prayer and they fall to their knees and they cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, do a work. Do this impossible work. We can't do it. We need you to do it. We are calling on you and pleading for you to do it. A fresh, fresh sense of holiness of coming together in desperate prayer. And last, it's interesting that the, the, as you look at the cultural situation that precedes these moments of, of renewal and revival, it always seems to be in a setting of, of social decline, of, of overt rebelliousness against God. There's no doubt that that is what's happening in Nineveh. Like they couldn't be any worse. Mark Sayers, who's an Australian theologian, he says this, crisis always precedes renewal. There always seems, as you look back historically, just this, this cultural malaise. And God seems to do something spectacular in the midst of it. And folks, I don't know about you, but as I look out across our world, and as I look at our city, it kind of feels like we might be in one of those seasons. Where the brokenness of humanity is so evident. Where socially and morally we have declined to such a low base. Now that we can look out of that brokenness with despair, well, we can see maybe these are exactly the conditions for God to bring about renewal. Mm. <laughs> and we can get on our knees and pray. 
And we're going to push into impress into that this year, praying specifically for that as we gather and pray this Wednesday. We'd love you to come seven o'clock. We gather here. We're going to pray and ask for God to pour out his spirit on this city. Folks, the gospel is powerful to transform even the worst of sins. And we can see that looking back in church history. But folks, we can also see that looking back in our own lives. Maybe being faith-filled missionaries starts with just looking back and seeing what God has done with this sinner. Maybe it starts with looking at your own life and seeing how God has saved you. Jonah could have done that. In fact, maybe he would have been more inclined to believe that Nineveh was going to be transformed rather than destroyed if he'd only looked back at his own life. If he'd have looked back, he would have seen this. Back in chapter one, we see the sailors. They have a powerful encounter with the Lord. They turn away from their idols and then they worship God. And then in Jonah's own story, he has a powerful encounter with the Lord. He turns away from his idols of comfort, apathy, fear, preference, and then he worships God. And then exactly the same thing happens with the Ninevites. They have a powerful encounter with God. They turn away from their idols and they worship God. Jonah's seen it before. And so he can expect that God's going to do it again. And listen, even for Jonah, like he's just been in the belly of a fish. Like that's spectacular, right? And he gets spewed out of this fish. Surely God could save these people. It's funny how we believe that, right? We believe that Jonah actually was in the belly of a fish and that he got spewed out, but then we struggle to believe that God could bring about revival in this city. How often, folks, do we forget how spectacular our own story of salvation is? How powerful the grace of God coming towards has been. And I'm certain that if we looked back and just studied our own story for a moment, we'd be strengthened as we look forward. And seek to reach others with with the gospel. So I want to do something different here. I want us to take a few minutes to look back and to see the power of the gospel to transform even the hardest of sinners through listening to Mark's testimony. Mark's going to come up for a few minutes and just share his story. And as he shares, I encourage us to listen, have our ears open, but also to be encouraged to see what the Lord might do based on what he has done. Probably the first time I've been introduced as the hardest. <laughs> Thanks, Neil. And uh, this is going to be the short version. Try and keep it as short as possible. So there's a lot more to this, and I'm happy to chat in any details you want to afterwards or have time. So I'm originally from a non Christian family. So as far back as I go, like to great grandparents, there's no one who went to church or is a Christian. And then my extended family, aunts, Cousins, there's no one who's a Christian. So I grew up, as most people in the UK who are not from a Christian family do, where, um, you know, they don't read the Bible, don't know much about Jesus, don't think about God very much. So just growing up in that kind of very, just what I kind of see in front of me, sort of way, ignoring God. Um, And I guess the start of the story is really, I had to change schools when I got to A-levels because I went to a small village school and I didn't have a sixth form, so I had to move schools. Uh, And the friends that I made there, which Joe and Alex, for those of you that know them or have met them before, still good friends with them, uh, they were really into debating and philosophy. 
So, because I was friends with them, I went to the debating club, went to debating competitions, started reading philosophy. And that's where I started to really put things together and to decide and have the words to explain it that actually I'm an atheist. I don't believe that God exists. I don't think it's something worthwhile um, thinking about or believing. So that's the state I was in when I went to university. And when I went to university, I jumped into all the like typical student things in the UK. I actually lived in a house. My dormitory had 13 guys, all guys. <laughs> and it was absolutely crazy. We did all the things you'd expect students to do. Drinking, going out to the nightclubs, just everything that went along with that. And I thought that I was doing the thing I'm supposed to do. My parents sent me to university with six bottles of wine and a bottle of vodka. So they were <laughs> setting me up for what university was supposed to be. And so I went thinking, I'm doing what I'm supposed to, to be happy. I'm doing what I'm supposed to, to enjoy life. But I found myself becoming increasingly empty and emptier. And the emptier I felt, the more extreme I felt I had to go. Like, oh, I feel empty, so I have to make it a more incredible night. I'm going to do even more. Um, and it just left me even emptier again. Uh, and so that's, I, I was kind of having this dissonance, and I wasn't really necessarily thinking about it at the time, but just really progressing into a very dark place in my life. Um, in fact, I used to be well known, um, even some of my course mates once said to me, Mark, I don't think I've ever seen you smile. Can you just smile once so that I've seen you smile? And I told them I have nothing to smile about. So I refused to do it. So that's the kind of state I was in. I had a couple of friends who were Christians and they were members of the Christian Union. So a group on campus um, of Christian students who are trying to tell the other students on campus about Jesus. And they invited me to an event called Grill a Christian. <laughs> and now with the debating background, a bit of philosophy, that really attracted me. The idea is you have a panel of Christians and the audience grill them with whatever sort of questions they want to. And I thought that I was smart and that I could surely ask some questions that are going to undermine their faith and completely change their mind. So I went in there and asked my questions and my first shock was they were Christians and they were smart. <laughs> and they gave me really great answers to everything that I asked. So I asked things like, oh, you say some of the Bible's metaphorical. Can't it all just be one big nice story of how to live life? It's not actually true. They told me, well, there's 66 books, different genres written throughout time. And so Psalms are poetry. They're obviously metaphorical. Some of it's historical narrative, real places, real people, real events. So that shocked me. And, uh, and I also realized Christians were willing to debate with me a lot. So they would stay up till 3 a.m. debating nonstop, which was fun. Started going to a church because they would debate with me there. Going to a Bible study because they would debate with me there too. <laughs> so I was really going around. And whatever answer I got, I would never accept it. I always had a comeback. If you ever debate with me, <laughs> you'll find <laughs> Julie hates it. <laughs> I always got a comeback. Um, and yeah, I can just imagine what they thought of me coming in like that. But as time went on, I started to understand that the Bible was really a historically credible document. I thought it was just something made up in the Middle Ages, something lost in translation through time. Actually, the number of ancient manuscripts, you really can't dismiss the text of the Bible. And so that led to me reading it and starting to grapple with it for myself. And the other thing I found was... I'd read lots of philosophy, but nothing was quite like the Bible. And there are things in there, like in Romans 6, where it says the wages of sin are death. 
And actually, when I was in that state, that darkness and emptiness, when I read things like that, that the wages of sin is death, actually, the Bible was describing my state as being spiritually dead. And I couldn't think of anything more perfect to describe how I was feeling. And there was just so many times like that reading the Bible where, you know, the Christians around me kept saying that this is the word of God. And so I started to actually see what they were saying by that. It was very different to other things that I had read. Um, So, you know, I was gradually believing that the Bible was historically credible, that it was also the word of God. But I still didn't come to a point where I actually took the step of faith and put my trust in Jesus. So there was one night where I was trying to think about who I thought Jesus was. So I was sitting there in my dorm room with a piece of paper and trying to write it out. (coughs) And as I was doing that, I had actually an overwhelming feeling of the presence of God it was absolutely terrifying. And I really felt like that God could see me in my entirety, like I was just naked before him. And he could see all of my brokenness. And I knew the things that I had done and been pursuing and that I really deserved judgment. It was so terrifying, I tried to escape. And I wasn't as dramatic as Jonah to charter a boat. (laughs) But I did go out from my dorm room and go across campus, just trying to escape this feeling. And I guess like Jonah, I discovered, well, God is everywhere. (laughs) And I couldn't escape that feeling of the presence of God. So I called one of my friends that I've been doing a Bible study with. And and he just told me, well, you know what you have to do. You just have to turn to Jesus and ask for him to forgive you. So I prayed with him on the phone, 11 p.m., 23rd of May, 2010. So nearly 13 years now. And there was a moment where I made the decision, I'm going to just put everything on Jesus. Um, and so I prayed with him on the phone. And ever since that moment, I, just, I immediately had a feeling of being filled up of fullness. Just like, you know, I guess looking back at it now, I'd say just like being filled with the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. And just a real sense of joy and peace. And that's never once for a moment left me since then. And the biggest thing is really the joy in knowing Jesus. I guess the things that I've gone through, um, like I always have that. And for those of you that see me smile and laugh, (laughs) that at one time was not who I was. (laughs) Um, So just what Jesus has done for me is really amazing. And I guess, you know, I seem like someone far away that I was an atheist and I was so argumentative for months and months. There was about six months I was just arguing nonstop. (laughs) So God really is mighty to save. Yeah. I look back. And folks, as we look out at the brokenness of the city, remember that he's done it before. He can do it again. You know, yesterday, as we were at table in the park, an atheist came over who wanted to debate. And Mark stood with him for about an hour. And I just stood back and I thought, firstly, Lord, you've got a sense of humour, right? But also... Like, we can totally believe that God can save this guy. He's standing face to face with someone who literally lived his story. Let's believe that he can do it again. And let's step out, folks, with the word of God on our hearts and on our lips. Resting in God's sovereignty to save, but daring to pray that he pour out his spirit and transform this place. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father... We confess that without you, we are, we are broken. 
We are lost. We are sinners who sit under your judgment. We thank you for the truth of the gospel that you've sent your son to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserve. And we thank you that you have invited us into an eternal life, an abundant life which we get to enjoy now and for all eternity with you. Thank you that you've changed us. You've transformed your people from guilty sinners to your sons and your daughters. And so by the power of your spirit, remind us of who we are this afternoon. If we are your children, remind us of the gospel. Remind us that we are your sons and your daughters, not not slaves anymore. Remind us that we are those who have been transformed from death to life. And Jesus, fill us with your Holy Spirit. We want your words to be in our mouths. So fill us with your word and speak through us. And Holy Spirit, give us faith. Strengthen us where we are struggling and doubting. Encourage us where we are weak. Allow the truth of the gospel to fill our hearts and give us joy. And if we're not yet your children, remind us of who we are. We're lost without you. We are sat under the judgment of our sins. So Father, send help. Pray that you would open the eyes of the blind and give life to those who are spiritually dead. Open all of our eyes to see that life comes only through your Son. And we pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Amen.